All right, all right, all right. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. Sorry, I was a bit late there. LinkedIn was playing up and I uh, couldn't tell whether we were live or not, but we are live or uh, live and direct. My name is Ken Sims. I'm your host, as always, and I need to tell you about the Conversational AI and Chatbot Summit that's happening in Edinburgh. VUX World has this track on the 16th of March in Edinburgh covering enterprise automation using conversational AI. It is presented by Core AI. It's part of the broader uh, European Chatbot Summit, and it's going to be absolutely immense. We've got Core AI, we've got Vodafone, we've got Love Holidays, we have Decathlon, we've got Deep Ground, we've got Action AI, we've got LNAR, Total Jobs Group, a whole bunch of brands are going to be there sharing with you how to implement conversational AI in the enterprise successfully and how to achieve big goals with conversational AI in 2023. So you can go to theeuropeanchatbot.com. They're going to flash it up right now. And if you use the promo code VUXEU23, you'll save 30% on your tickets. That is theeuropeanchatbot.com, promo code VUXEU23 to save 30%. Uh, hopefully, you'll go there, and hopefully, I will see you in Edinburgh. If you can't make it to Edinburgh, there is online tickets available. You can watch the whole thing online if you go to theeuropeanchatbot.com. All right. Now then, without further ado, Sean Moss. Hello. Hello, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm going to bring on our guest today right now, who is Matt Taylor, the co-founder and head of product at Noble. Very exciting company and very timely as well, uh, the stuff that Noble is doing, considering the attention and the movement in the kind of large language model space and generative AI space. Uh, and Matt has got a lot of experience and Noble in particular, making very good use of this technology. So Matt, welcome to VUX World, my friend. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Kane. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to get into uh, today's conversation, and yeah, it's just been a crazy time. You know, the ChatGPT really, uh, uh, you know, ignited the start to all this. It has, doesn't it? It seems to be every podcast that I've done since December or November has been the beginnings of that conversation. Has been hasn't ChatGPT just sent this 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 industry absolutely crazy? Everyone seems to be feeling it. It's mad. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, the technology's been there, right? You know, the the GPT 3.0, 3.5, like, you know, if you go back to, to the BERT models, these these large language models have been there, but it's it's gone viral to the point where, you know, I, I'm i answering texts from, you know, my brother about that, who's, you know, not even in this space at all, asking me, hey, like, is ChatGPT kind of similar to what you guys do, you know? The other day I saw it on the golf channel and it's just like, it's, it's really everywhere. So it's, it's hilarious and awesome at the same time to just see, you know, uh, everyone in, in just my life being like, you know, aware of what's going on with chat GPT. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just been a crazy time. Yeah. It's uh there was, I got an invite the other day from, uh, I'm going to be doing some, some, a little bit of lecturing for one of the unis around here. And they invited me to a discussion that the, that the, kind of staff at the uni have organized and they're trying to invite the students to it and it is all about kind of the impact of chat gpt on education and it's like it, what's really interesting is how as you said these language models have been around for a long time um conversational ai has been around for a long time the concept of ai has been around forever uh but it's now getting to the point which is good which is that lots of people are talking about ai uh, they're talking about the ethics, they're talking about how to use it responsibly and effectively, they're talking about it, how it's going to disrupt real kind of like fundamental industries that have existed the same way as they currently are for a long time, like education, you know. Um, 
and it's and what's interesting though is that people are not talking about AI necessarily the impact of AI they're talking about the impact of chat GPT the product so the product mm-hmm. is just it's the product itself that's got the sort of reputation which opens that conversation in broader circles about AI more generally which I think is is a good thing you know 100% I, I think bringing attention to you know what how this AI can be applied to to solve so many problems you know obviously we're focused a lot on the enterprise but there's so many different you know applications of what of how you can apply this and I you know when you think about education I I think about like if I had this back in high school just the ability to be like hey can you you know type me up a, a book report on this book or you know I used to have to read spark notes and that was how I, you know, learned, you know, really quickly, but this is like, like times a million when it comes to being able to do that type of stuff. If I, I used to be one of those people and probably still am to a certain extent, which saves everything until the night before. And it's like yeah. you know, 11 o'clock the night before I really should study for this exam. I really need to crack on with this, with this report. I once, uh, I went to college and I did uh, music technology. And one of the assignments that we had, I always remember was we had to create a, a video. We had to find a video, take the audio off it and then rebuild the audio in that video from scratch. So I found a little cartoon. It's called Sea Lab. It was like a bit of a kind of like it was an adult swim cartoon, like an adult cartoon. It's called Sea Lab. It was hilarious. And I found one of those cartoon episodes. It was about 15 minutes long. Took all the audio off it. And me and my mate were doing this assignment together. And it was like literally the day before it was due. And we're like, what on earth are we going to do? We've got this blank video. We've got no audio at all. <laughs> and it's just me and him in my bedroom. So anyway, my dad had been out for a few drinks and I rang him up and I said, Wait, Dad, what time are you going to be back? He said, I don't know, about half past 10 in the evening at night. It's like about 8 o'clock at night now. And I said, right. I said, any chance you could bring some of your mates back? I said, I said I've got this assignment I need to do. and It's due tomorrow at college, but I just need some audio. I need some people to record some dialogue. So I heard my dad put, put his phone to his side and went, hey, lads, uh, fancy a few drinks around man after this? And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, our, our kid needs us to record some stuff for his college work and that. They were like, you are, you are. Anyway, they came round. There must have been about five of them in my bedroom, all smashed, you know what I mean? They've been out drinking all night. And I'm just giving them all a microphone. I'm saying, read this line, read this line, read this line. And I cobbled together the dialogue of this for this cartoon based on all of these drunk men. Uh, at, 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 this, was, this was at 11 o'clock the night before it was due in. Turned out it was actually really funny and it was actually good, so it worked out all right. But if I had ChatGPT back then, none of it would be as anxiety-provoking as it was, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, sounds like it, it went well, though. And uh, It did, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great story. I love it. <laughs> so tell me about Noble then. Uh, in fact, tell me about yourself, first of all. You've got a lot of experience in this space. You're at Clink prior, Noble now. Tell me a little bit about your journey in, in this sort of conversational AI NLP space. Yeah. So, I mean, how I found my way in this space, you know, was sometimes I always say it's, it's, it's lucky, but also meant to be, um, you know, so I, I was a business major and I was working at uh, PwC and doing consulting. And one of the things that they were focusing on is, is really growing an innovation lab. So I was interested in that, you know, just something a little bit different than the classic consulting projects and, we started working with um, a lot of these enterprises. It was mainly on the, you know, the financial services. And we were talking with a lot of these conversational AI providers. So that's actually how I got introduced uh, to Clink. And at the time, 
you know, there was a, a couple of my uh, uh, people that I went to college with that were over there. So, you know, this is in Ann Arbor. That's where I went to school. So joined Clink and was such a great experience, spent uh, a little over three years there and really just became so entrenched in the product and really being able to take these experiences that ultimately you're trying to solve problems for. So, you know, one of the the customers we had at the point at that time was uh, U.S. Bank. And every single time that they asked us, hey, can we build this new intent? You know, scoping it out, understanding, you know, all the complexities of a conversation and really working with the the data scientists, the engineers. It was a, it was an awesome process. And it was you know, one of those things where I, I learned so much um, and built a lot of great relationships there. And one of the things, though, over time that we really realized is, and I think COVID highlighted this and COVID highlighted a lot of things for a lot of people, right? So, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that when we were in the space that we were, financial services was obviously hit very hard by COVID. Contact centers, volumes were going up crazy. And you know, and at that time I was the director of product and I was the product owner of our Feeny virtual assistant. That's what we called it. It was our virtual assistant that we really wanted to leverage as far as an out of the box solution that would obviously be customized when we go from bank to bank or credit union, credit union. But ultimately that was the the base solution. And everyone was, you know, coming to us, Hey, like we need, we need intense about stimulus checks. We need intense about loan forgiveness, all the things people were calling in about and started to realize like, wow, this is not scalable. Like, like building out these intents aren't scalable. We, you know, at the time we had intents around ordering checks, deposit checks, and just working with the team and figuring out how, how much work goes into really going through all that data that's been collected and train the AI and then having to, you know, manipulate that data, take out some of that. And, and it really just, it got to the point where adding a new intent was you know becoming so much longer than the previous one as far as the cycles that would be taken up in the team and um you know that's kind of when we realized um hey there's got to be a better way you know and the one uh, one of the uh, other co-founders uh, at noble parker hill he was the chief architect over at clink and you know me and him had built a really great relationship and um you know he was very connected to the research side and he was, uh, you know, PhD in this and really understood where there's always a gap as far as what's in, available in the market and what, you know, research is working on. Because at the end of the day, academia doesn't have the problem of, hey, we got to productize this. We can just focus on, you know, researching the coolest innovations and really continuing to push the envelope. And that's that's ultimately what OpenAI is, you know, out there doing. And ultimately, um, you know, what we realized is leveraging these large language models, we could start to solve a lot of these problems that we are running into. And, and a lot of that is just the management of all the data. Um, so that's, you know, and then we got introduced um, to Jay Wolcott, our CEO. He had been, um, he was, his, his company, Digital Roots, which was a social media AI company, they got acquired by interaction. So another, you know, voice AI virtual assistant company. So he was actually dealing with the same stuff over there. And so we kind of all got together and really just figured out like, Hey, like if we got to do this all over again, what are some of the biggest pain points 
and how could we solve those pain points with large language models? And, and that's really the birth of Noble and, and how it started. Um, and that was in November of 21. So mm. it's been about a year and uh, four or five months. And it's, um, man, it's been crazy. It's <laughs> the, I, I laugh because the conversations we had about eight months ago, whenever like we stopped saying transformer models, large language models on calls, because every time we said those words, like enterprise didn't know, and it almost sounded like gimmicky, you know, they just were like, I, I don't know what that is. And then the same enterprises later down the line, like they remember, oh, wait, they, like, and they're like, oh, wait, you guys are the ones using transformer models now that like, you know, chat GPTs out. So it, it's just kind of cool to see the evolution, the knowledge transfer that always has to happen from this vendor enterprise relationship, uh, you know, start to evolve over time. Hmm. Interesting. That's really good. So, so you alluded to a big pain point there, which is managing these intents kind of, as you begin to scale, you get more intense. Some of them become similar, you know, what's the difference between order a new card and freeze my card. There's a lot of similarity in the words that are in those sentences and things like that. You get into disambiguation most of the time rather than actually matching on an intent. And then you add one new intent and how does that affect the rest of your model? There's a whole bunch of regression testing that needs to be done and it, it becomes kind of very convoluted and, and complicated. Uh, so, so completely concur with that. What are some of the other challenges that when you kind of said, that you all got together and we'll get on to noble in a minute but like what are some of the other challenges not necessarily inherent in clink but in that kind of way of operating that you were seeking to try and solve yeah so i mean like when you design a conversation there's a lot of parts of that right so what, we, what we've already you, you've alluded to is the intents right so an intent you you want to classify the the user to go to where you know ultimately you would want them to go and you collect the, the, that, those training utterances, um, you know, training phrases, however you want to, um, whatever you want to call those. But then there's other parts of these conversations. So, you know, say we're talking about, you know, maybe I want to filter out uh, through a search type of like, you know, if I'm asking about some certain types of products, transactions, there's filters, right? Or if maybe I'm even performing a transaction, I need to find what are called entities or slots. And so when you think about slot or entity extraction, that actually takes even more data than intent classification. So normal, like standard intent classification, you'd see really around 100 to 300 utterances um, that we would train the AI on. It really depends on how much you scale the model out. Um, sometimes you scale it out, you want to actually reduce the amount of utterances. But the entity extraction you know, would sometimes take thousands of examples. So you're, you're going through and you can crowdsource however you want. You still have to curate the data, but you're labeling all these different examples for the AI to recognize patterns of where it should extract these different entities. Um, so that was a huge, huge problem. Then you go on, okay, like when we're creating experience, so we need to create the intents. We need to extract the important pieces of information once they're in that intent. But then we also need to like allow for contextual awareness. So if I'm, you know, the user, and I'm talking about, hey, can you show me all my transactions um, on um, restaurants? Okay, like it, it gives me that. But then I want to be able to say, okay, over how about over the last month? Okay, what about those specifically at, you know, McDonald's or those specifically at, you know, during this period of time? And really what you're doing is creating these contextual flows. And these, these transitions, they require data too. So like we, we always use the example of like, you know, when you're in financial services, like you think about, okay, we want to create uh, an experience around opening 
uh, an account, you know, maybe it's an IRA. Well, it's not as simple as the user's not just going to always say, Hey, I want to open an IRA. Sometimes they come in with like, Hey, can you tell me a difference between traditional and Roth IRAs? And what you create is you end up with an experience with about 15 to 20 intents that are all related, but now you need to create all these transitions. And so before you know it, the amount of data you collected to just power that one experience that you ultimately wanted, which is opening an IRA, it just now, you know, took, you know, thousands and thousands of utterances. And now the problem is once you try to scale that, it's it's difficult because now you have to go back and every single time you're adding any type of similar intent and it doesn't even have to be a similar intent the way these these models are trained there's biases that you sometimes only the the best data scientists could really spot when they're going through um and and that's the difference between that generation of models and large language models um is really the 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 previous generation is recognizing patterns so the the analogy i use is Imagine I were to, you know, we were to start a company, we need to hire a customer service rep to answer phone calls. Well, like the previous generation would be like, okay, we're going to hire someone that doesn't understand the language that they need to serve these people in. So we have to actually teach them the language as we're teaching them the domain. That's going to be incredibly difficult. The other way is the large language models is like taking someone who basically has at least, you know, maybe a high school diploma and they understand the language. Now we need to teach them the domain. So it's very, very limited as far as how much, how much information we need to provide in order to get it to that same, you know, um, the same competency. And, and when you think about scaling, then it makes it way easier. Because again, when you're looking at the, the pattern recognition, it can start to identify wrong patterns. And we've seen that so many times. I, you know, we're working with enterprise and one of them was telling us, yeah, we have this uh, rewards intent we build, but like every time someone mentioned their spouse, it would go to rewards and we didn't understand why. And they went and started looking at the data and it just happened to be that a lot of the data had things like, you know, my wife, my spouse, my husband, and all of a sudden what it did is create this bias towards anytime it sees that it thinks that that is important to that. And that's because it doesn't understand language. It's just recognizing patterns. And that's ultimately where large language models can help a lot is they actually understand language. You know, we're not training it on all the different nuances of how people speak. We're actually training it on the domain now. And that's how we can get these large language models to do some of the more specific things we need them to do. Mm, That's very good. That is a very good way of, of analyzing it. What then is what does what does noble do then obviously <clears throat> there's a large language model component you're setting out to try and solve the problem of all of this kind of the lack of scalability from the intent side of things the lack of um scalability from the entity and, and slot filling or classification side of things or extraction rather you're trying to solve the problem of managing context which does get very complex i remember you, you mentioned roth iras of that i once worked on something that was doing very something very similar and it was a prototype so there wasn't we had no data and basically had to just build all based on entity extraction and slot and and and, context, and context basically. So we're trying to find a a retirement account. It all kind of depends, doesn't it, on how much you earn, how much you can save, all this kind of stuff, depending on whether you want a Roth or traditional or whatever. And the complexity of just understanding where this conversation could go to, it was just unwieldy. Add the data on top of that, and you've you've got a recipe for disaster. Especially if you want to change something, as you said, insert a new thing into that web. And you, you, you know, where, why else do you break when you do that? You know, so, so 
what does Noble do then? So when you, as you said, you got down back to the drawing board, let's let's do this again. If we were going to start with a blank, blank piece of paper, what would we do? What happened then? What did you do? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing we, we talked about is, is natural language generation really at a point where enterprises can't trust that AI can go out there and throw out a response with really out restricting it, right? Like, you know, if you look at ChatGPT, one of the cool parts about it is it can just generate its own response. But when you think about the enterprise level, they don't have the they don't they, they don't have the risk tolerance to allow that to happen. They they can't afford ChatGPT to say something that could honestly be you know very incorrect, but they will also make it sound very factual. Like they're very good at making something that isn't right sound right. And you can't have that in an enterprise. So what we realized is okay, well we need to constrain this, right? We need to constrain the, the generation part to something that they have. And at this point, all the research pointed towards the amount of content that these brands are creating on an annual basis is, is just increasing at an exponential rate. Like content is being pushed out quicker than ever before. And part of that is because of the, the content generation, you know, applications like a Jasper, which leverages uh, GPT. But ultimately what we're seeing is, okay, so we have a ton of this content that's already been approved by the brand. So let's configure this large language model to be able to actually look at this content, ingest it, and then use that to answer the questions that a user may have when they go to that digital property of the brand. So what we built is, you know, the initial layer is this platform that allows the AI to go and ingest content, you know, whether it's a knowledge-based content management system, documents, wherever it is. And a lot of these, you know, large enterprises have it. I mean, their content is everywhere. And so what you want to do is take in all that content and really allow the AI to be able to parse out what is the best answer based on the user's query. And that's leveraging these large language models. And then, you know, that's kind of where we, all right, well, let's push the envelope a little further. What if we were, you know, how, containing or maintaining contextual awareness is very difficult and it's manual. Can we figure out a way to allow the AI to do this from an automated fashion? And so then what we did was we built a layer on top um, and this is patented is the ability to once the AI ingests that content, what we're doing is we're clustering all these similar topic areas. And once those topic areas are clustered, as far as the similarity between them, like semantically, then when a user can go in and ask questions, they can ask those follow-up questions. You know, they can say, hey, you know, tell me what, what is a traditional IRA? You know, tell me a little bit about that. Okay, how does that differ from a Roth? Okay, what are the contribution requirements? And being able to go through that conversation while maintaining context of the fact I'm talking about that traditional IRA. And so being able to do that automatically you know, is a huge step as far as being able to have that conversational experience. So now we've connected to their content. We've now made it very conversational in the fact that I can just continue to ask these questions. And now what we have is a, is a great informational experience. And that informational experience can be applied in a lot of different, um, you know, business use cases, whether it's, you know, if an agent needs to get information while they're on the phone, if, you know, if there's, if the user itself goes to a website, you know, we, we joke around because one of the first things we started was like, why are websites still the same 25 years later? Like you can actually see websites like over year by year and see like how they've changed. And some of these enterprises, like 
it looks the same 20 years later. It's like you think about like a digital property should not look the same 20 years later. And all they do is add more tabs and add more links and all these things. And it's very difficult for a user to go in. And and we I love the use analogy. So I'll use this one. Like imagine I'm going to, um, you know, a, a hardware store and I need help. Most of the time they're going to come up to me and say, hey, how can I help you? And they're going to guide me throughout the, the store. Well, if I come into the website, which now COVID has made it very normal that that is your, your brick and mortar, that that's the, that's the part where I'm going to become a customer. When I come into Home Depot or Lowe's or any of those websites, you look at those and you're like, oh my God, like, I, where do I go? Like, I don't, it's, it's over, it, it's too much. Your, your brain's overstimulated by the amount of things. And you just want to ask like, hey, like, I'm like trying to replace my shower door. Like, what do I need for that? You know, and instead of like having to like guess where you have to, um, click. And so ultimately what we did is like, okay, let's start with that informational perspective. And we did that. And, you know, we got to the point where it's like, okay, like this is great. It's, it's headless. We're able to, you know, power a search or chat or anything. And then how do we push this further now? Like let's like, we call these transactional experiences, but now if the user is authenticated and we can actually get information in, you know, in the back end from this brand, what what are like how do we create those experiences and some of those you can't you can only expedite so much right like you have integrations that you're going to have to build into and some of the dialogue flow or management of, of how the conversation goes but that entity extraction that's so critical and so what we did was actually a you know another patent that we have is we built a layer that allows for this few shot learning with entity extraction so instead of you know if i'm building out a, a, a funds transfer type of flow, normally I would need, you know, three to 500 utterances where I tr- like, like label, Hey, what's the destination account, the source account, the amount that they're wanting, they want to transfer. Now we can literally just give like one little phrase that says, Hey, like destination account or source account or where the money's going to, where the money's coming from. And because the, the large language models understand language, they understand what to look for now. And so it's very, very easy to, to create these experiences compared to how it was before. And so that's kind of, those are some of the, and we're continuing to like, you know, knock down these big problems that we, we um, you know, we're addressing, like when we had to build these experiences in the market. And so that's why we always say we're, re- we're like researchers that are practitioners. You know, we look at the research and we're following the latest research but we want to make sure that we're applying this to the problems that we know enterprises are facing because we live this life. Yeah, interesting. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack there. Like the the first thing which will be interesting is when you say there that that you can and I, there's a question from Sean. We'll get to that Sean in a minute. Um, using it to extract entities. So one of the things that large language models are said to be is very good when they work but then again they might not work because it's it's generative and it's a little bit unpredictable so how accurate is an llm for example in the noble platform at entity extraction is it 100 percent? so 80 percent? like how accurate no, is that no no so without you know, any training and, and it goes from, I would like say this, the same for intent classification, entity extraction to even the automated contextual part. I, I usually would say it's around like, 
out of the box without any type of additional training or fine tuning, you're looking at around a 70%. And like, not, that's not great, but it's also pretty far from like, you know, just being able to do that right out of the gate. Now, what we allow and what we built for in the platform is knowing, okay, well, 70% might cut it for some businesses that are new to this and they just need something out there. But a lot of the enterprises aren't going to settle for that. They want to get to that 85, 90% accuracy rating. And, and so how we allow from that like 70 to, to 90%, you know, traditionally, that's actually like the hardest once you're getting to that point on these traditional models, because every time you, you know, fix something, you're, you're kind of breaking something else. And so what we allow for is one, we allow the, the, um, the user to input utterances to, you know, like basically what would be called few shot warning to allow it to accompany the content that's there. So that's one way. But another thing that's very important that we um, implement is what we call our query diagnosis tool. So when, you know, a query is, it goes in into the system and say it gives you the wrong piece of content, the wrong answer. What we allow is for you to go in there, you know, see where it went and then actually match it to where it should have gone. And then what we do is we produce this query diagnosis, which actually will weight every token. So you can think of every word is weighted and it will show you what words are being taken, like are gravitating it towards where it went or taking it away from where it went. So ultimately I'm able to see now, and, and, and this is what a data scientist would be doing in, in their head when they're looking at these and the, using different tools to figure this out. We're now allowing someone who doesn't, isn't a data scientist to see, oh, wow, like, this word is really, you know, like troublesome for this specific utterance. Let's add a variable utterance to our, you know, our set of data to ultimately be able to train it that, hey, this word shouldn't trip you up anymore. And we don't have to now, you know, add tons of data. We just added one utterance. And now that will work with that large language model to ultimately be able to kind of fine tune that, if you will, um, throughout the process. So that's how we allow from that 70 to getting up there towards that upper echelon of accuracy mm, that's good when you're when you're um this is again related to sean's question i will come to that question in a minute because i think it's i think we touched on a little bit of it here actually but let's take that use case there a brand lots of content knowledge base website content loads of loads of different sources you ingest that do you understand that correctly do you scan it or do you ingest it? yeah so we ingest it. So yeah. most of the time what we'll want to do is integrate with that, like wherever their system is that like, you know, that content is actually the original copy of. And then once we integrate with that, it then allows so, you know, they can pass back once they want to, you know, increase the amount of content or make changes and that it then will get to our system. So every yeah. time they update it, it ultimately is updated in our platform. Yeah. And then, and then you're using the LLM to take a query from the customer, figure out, where that content sits and then what do you do then do, do you take the content synthesize it and then generate a response or do you use the llm to just find the place in the content and then serve verbatim what is in the knowledge management system or on the web page or whatever so we'll leverage llm to actually find exactly the snippet of content that you would ultimately want to to answer a certain question. Now, one of the things that we've seen, because we've tested this early on of like, okay, well, it obviously is gonna work really great for FAQs because those responses are already built to be conversational. 
but like what happens when you're doing a blog or an article and you know there's different ways that you can format it to where you know we we like allow for a, a word count to you know condense the answer because sometimes you know if you're a user and you have a question you don't want a full paragraph you just want a, a little blurb um and we've also allowed for you know when you're connecting to these systems that you can actually change the content within our platform as well if you wanted to you know make it more conversational um but that that you know there's also then different display formats search is a great way to you know, display different blogs because then you can link them to that blog if they want to read more. So we only take maybe the the first intro snippet, give them a little taste and then say, hey, here, link out. And if you want to read more about that. Um, but there's definitely always going to be this um, content improvement process when you once we ingest it. Like, again, if, if they have tons of FAQs, that's always great because again, FAQs were built to be conversational. So say we upload a thousand FAQs across all their different, you know, uh, different areas, we could reload that in there and then they can have a contextual conversation works really well. Once we start ingesting some of that unstructured content, there is a process where we have to go and we have to figure out, okay, how would we best format this to answer a question? Cause like some of that content, if, if I'm a user and I'm in a chat, like, you know, chat window and they give me this long paragraph and like, yeah, like it answers my question, but it's in the middle. That'd be very weird. On Google, like if we show it in a search format, that's kind of normal. Like when, when I Google something, they give me an answer, which and sometimes like some of it's not relevant, then they bold what's relevant. That's okay. Like that's what I'm expecting as a user. When I'm chatting, like, you know, like on, on a chat interface, I'm not expecting that type of experience. So it's all just making sure that you stay, um, you know, true to the like experience that you're ultimately trying to build. But um, again, ultimately, this is supposed to be headless, so you can really allow it to scale across those different properties. Schoolboy error. I was on mute. Um, so is it, is it fair to say then that you um, regurgitate content sometimes in the case of an FAQ, but generate content other times if, for example, there's bits of information in lots of different places and a query requires some assembly of content from different data sources. Is that kind of what I'm hearing of? I misunderstood. So no, we'll still, we'll still pick like, we'll still pick the the actual content as it is because so when it comes to assembling different content, like that's where we're using that's, that's NLG at the same point, it, you know, if you're still bringing content together and then you're formulating a, a sentence, sometimes there's still some like, you're basically like going against the the idea that, Hey, this has been compliance approved. This content right. is our, we don't have to go through that process of making sure every answer the AI says is, you know, truthful, logical, all those things. So we're staying compliant by really just allowing only the content that they have. We do take word for word. We just, what we take is the best content available for that, you know, specific question. And I think the great part you know, that's kind of two pronged when we think about the value of, of, of Noble, like there's obviously all the application you get of like being able to conversationalize their content, but also the voice of the customer. Now you can start to see where you have gaps in that content, right? So like if I'm a brand and I'm, you know, and, and I'm developing content, I'm the, you know, the head of content strategy and I see in the system, tons of people asking about, you know, this new, especially with the way our world is working, everything, every day, there's something new people are asking about. We would want to have new content developed and this will guide us into, 
hey, everyone's asking about this. Let's kind of point our content strategy towards that. And as we develop new content, now it's actually powering that AI as well. So it's kind of, you know, it's working in unison. Mm, that makes sense that makes sense and that then answers sean's question um which is how do you trust the ai output and the answer to that then is that you don't have it generate you use compliance approved content and you only serve what's already been approved yeah yeah and again as we as the research continues in the nlg space i think what we're already seeing is enterprises starting to get a little bit more comfortable with the idea of the ai producing its own language um, or producing its own response. But at this point in time, at least from the conversations I'm having with a lot of these enterprises, it's just not, they're not comfortable yet. And and I, they're just not willing to take that risk. And so that's why they're really comfortable with our solution in that like, we are only giving them what you guys have already written. If you guys haven't written something about it, we can't give them information about that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it's different, isn't it, from an enterprise point of view? Like their their risks are obviously a lot higher than, for example, you know, Microsoft and Bing GPT. There's a risk there. You get information wrong, but ultimately, it's like not your responsibility. It's it's from the web. We just give you what's there. But Micah Micah Hronovicker did a really interesting video yesterday, where she kind of filmed her first. She got access to the Bing GPT and filmed her first interaction with it. And she was asking questions about mechanical keyboards and the size of certain mechanical keyboards. Um, And so what she did is she asked a question to Bing GPT, which was, can you give me the size measurements for the X, Y, and Z mechanical keyboards, three mechanical keyboards? I asked that question to Bing GPT. It come back with an answer, said, yes, the measurement for this one is that, the measurement for that one is this, and the measurement for this one is that. And it linked to the source, Right, so you can go to the website and see. But what it had done is it wasn't just regurgitating what was on the source page, it was generating content based off of the source page. And what that meant was the three answers were completely incorrect and not actually a reflection of what was on the source material. (laughs) So it's like generation sounds fantastic, but actually for a lot of these cases, it's not needed at all. And, and the scariest part about it is that it is it, it it's so good at being able to present it in the format of which it looks like it's right, and that's where it gets really really scary for the enterprises. It it you know what it, you know we've been talking about this as far as like the, the generation part, um, but like what it'll do is if you know say for example I'm a bank, and have a lot of different accounts. If I say hey what's your rate for this account? If it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't actually like have the rate for that checking account or whatever account I'm talking about, it will grab another rate and use that in place. And now you're giving a user completely incorrect information that is influencing their purchasing decision with you. And like that, that's where it's like, no, like there's there's no way they're going to allow that. So, you know, we're we put these guardrails on there um, and. I don't know if, you know, the enterprises will ever be completely fine with the guardrails coming off. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't know how that looks, but, you know, at the same time with this evolution of technology, there's always, you know, uh, pushing the envelope with research. So it, I, I definitely could see it in the future, but yeah, at this point there, there's just too much risk. Mm, definitely. Definitely. You were talking earlier about context management and stuff like that. Um, 
I had a conversation with someone the other day about knowledge graphs and the role of knowledge graphs in AI systems and stuff like that. And the debate was, where, where is when is the right time to use a knowledge graph? And it kind of got me thinking a little bit as you're explaining there, the way that you kind of manage context being kind of, you know, you ask a question about this and then behind the scenes, you know that this is related to that and therefore you can kind of hop and skip and stuff like that. Is, is it kind of a knowledge graph premise or, or, or structure that you're business on or is there another way of, of managing context in, in the way that you described? Well, how these large language models are actually working once we, you know, take the, all the content in there is what it's actually doing is it's giving these vector representations and these vector representations are actual numbers that then are attributed based on the semantic similarity between them. And so what that ultimately allows is when I, as the user, come in and ask a question, it's going to take the semantic similarity of my question, look at all the different embeddings to then say, okay, well, what is the closest vector representation based off that? And then that's how it's going to match it. And then the layers that we've built on top. So in a way, it's already doing that knowledge graph. But now you you think about adding the contextual layer. So now we're not just taking this, you know, uh, meaning of what my first query is, but maybe uh, the next query is, but the, the query before that and the one before that. So now it's compounding on that to really allow for the AI to go and be a little bit more, you know, like choose the right piece of content based on that contextual flow, instead of just being that one shot, like, you know, hey, we're just taking this question and just, you know, answering, you know, that from the content. We're actually looking at the conversation now, and that's how that contextual management is automated. So in a way, it is doing that knowledge graph type of work, but it's doing it in an automated fashion. That's ultimately why large language models are so useful for a lot of reasons, but, you know, ultimately, you know, in the way we're using it. Mm, nice. There's a question from Nan Bress here, which I will get to in a minute, uh, Nan, but I'm, I'm curious about kind of this context management thing, because we had we had Nick Frost, the CTO of Cohere, on the podcast a couple of weeks back, and I said to him, what would, the, what would be the one thing that you wish LLMs could do? And his response was, he wishes that they didn't have a character limit in terms of the prompt that you can give them and also a character limit in terms of what they can respond with. Like you can't ask an LLM today to write you a 10,000 page novel. There's just not enough kind of bandwidth on the response kind of thing. So when it comes to managing context, would it be fair to say or not, if there's another way of doing it, that the context could only be maintained for a certain length of time based on the limits of inputs and outputs from an LLM? or is the context managed elsewhere so that you only give the LLM specific and, and, and more concise instructions at every turn? So unless we, the way our, our contextual management works is you can think of these, like I almost think of these different clusters as kind of these bubbles, right? And so if I enter in a bubble and I start asking questions about this topic area, it is going to look for like my next question it's going to first look in that bubble. Then if it doesn't find information within that bubble, now it goes to the general like sense of like, okay, well, let's now look for the best answer. So in a way, if I stay within that bubble, I could stay in there as long as I want, if there's enough content, but like as far as that bubble being all the semantic similar, you know, topics or, you know, content. But then once I expand out, then yeah, uh, you know, I would leave the contextual 
part of that because the, the AI was not able to find anything contextually aware based on what I was asking. So it, it's kind of putting these, these, you know, soft guardrails over the actual semantic similar content. But so I can, as a user, I can still go from topic to topic, but you know, if I want to stay within a topic, I don't have to continue to like, you know, let the AI know that I could just stay within that realm. So does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I suppose that the, I mean, that that definitely makes sense in terms of how how you're managing context. That maybe is a, a, a another way of, of answer of phrasing the question would be: Do you find that there is any constraints then, perhaps, when using large language models regarding the length of inf- how many characters you can give it? And how many characters it can respond with? Maybe, in, maybe in your case, in terms of the response, might not be as relevant because you're, you mentioned you're using content yeah. from elsewhere. So maybe in terms of what you feed the large language model, is there any limitations yes. or constraints? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of the use cases that we're, you know, working with, I, you know, we haven't had a problem with hey, it's too much, too much text to where like it's you know overpowering the system. The system is taking too long, like latency and all that. I will say that, you know, the more information that it receives, it is a little bit more of a guessing game on which part it will then ultimately look at and parse out. Similar to if I like talk to a human, like if I give you a loaded question with a ton of different like parts of it, it's going to be hard for you to respond without like saying, well, all right, like, you know, like a human's going to go, well, first off, let's like start with like this one, then this, and like, let's unpack that. The AI, you know, there's parts that you can then manipulate by adding a little disambiguation or potentially even some business logic to break down those, what we would call multi-intents. But at the same time, you know, those are going to be always difficult um, just because, again, related to how a human works. If I give you a ton of content or in in a question, then like that is going to be very difficult um, to, to, to manage. But, you know, as far as the constraints, I don't, I can't answer that as far as if, you know, we like, we haven't fed it, you know, uh, like as far as the input from the user being like, you know, a full page asking a ton of different questions. Like, so I, I don't know if that would put constraint. I would imagine it would it to an extent, but yeah, I mean, most of the use cases we're working with are going to be, you know, the, the, the longest thing we'll see is maybe two paragraphs. If that. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, we've got a question here from Nan Bresser, and we'll get to this question, which is, uh, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, being part research and, and part implementation, um, is there room for qualitative research, like ethnographers who do deep dives with small sample of respondents who are interested in entering the field, or is all of the research quantitative? Um, so a lot of the research that you're talking about in terms of the developments of AI that's where things like transformers came from in the first place was people doing research and how to better classify and understand language and stuff like that. Is there space, do you think for more kind of qualitative research in, in this field and from a practitioner point, someone trying to get into this space, is there, is there room there? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, when I think about the research space, it's, it's, always trying to push the envelope. That's what open AI is. I'm going to build the best, they're going to build the best AI model. So obviously a lot of that research is quantitative, but when you think about being a practitioner, a lot of this is then filling in that gap of like, okay, what can the technology do? What do we want to solve? And there's definitely going to be qualitative research that needs to be done there from user studies. And, you know, at the end of the day, like 
we need to figure out a lot of times how are users going to respond to what we're creating. And you have to be able to find that research in order to guide the user. And, and, and you know, we still see it in today's, you know, chatbots or today's virtual assistants. Sometimes people still want to click a button. There are times where it's like, oh, no, it's easier to click a button than going in and being more conversational. So there's always going to be, um, I think, you know, design and especially research around the user design is always going to be such a focal point. And I mean, that's really the the UX of it. Like, I mean, VUX, like you guys, like that's all it is, is like really focusing on the UX of voice and how you can really understand what, um, you know, ultimately what the user wants. Because that if the user doesn't want to engage with the tool, the tool now becomes way less useful than, you know, we, we wanted it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm just going to put a link on here, uh, Nan, in the chat there, which is um, essentially the conversation I had with Micah Coppins yesterday uh, from Open Dialogue was basically all about this. And the conversation that I titled, Have We Forgotten Some of the Basics?, which is that take any project, whether it's UX design, whether it's service design, what's the first thing that you do? You try and understand the business context, you try and understand the user context. That user context understanding can come in a lot of different ways. You could do some kind of like um, quantitative analysis and look at analytics and analyze transcripts and do topic modeling and all that kind of stuff. Or you can actually do some interviews. You can speak to some customers. You can figure out what they actually think and feel and the situation that they're in. You can do user journey maps and all that kind of stuff. So that conversation yesterday was a real deep dive in user research methodologies and techniques for, for conversational AI. So, Nan, if you're interested, I've just put the link there in the uh, in the chat. But it's definitely something that um, maybe maybe not – I haven't identified a lot of research necessarily being done as in, in a similar sense in a way that some of the kind of like um, quantitative research is aiming at trying to further the application of the technology, make LLMs – more accurate or more controllable, make natural language understanding more accurate, you know, better at, at understanding intent and stuff like that. Um, maybe there's space for research around um, qualitative research around people's thoughts and feelings and behavior towards AI as we start to, you know, the start of the conversation, we spoke about how universities are on top of it now, you know, people in marketing are on top of it, HR are on top of it, everyone's now on top of it. So it's a good time to be thinking about the ethical implications of it, the uh, the security requirements of it, um, the behavioral components and stuff like that. So I think there's definitely space for all types of research. We're very early days, you know, it's only just got to kind of like a place where people's parents know about it you know so it's still early days <laughs> yeah no doubt it's uh it's crazy how, how viral it's gone it's uh yeah like we said in the beginning of the, the of the session it's 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 gotten to the point where you can't really turn away from it everywhere i look like it, it's not just linkedin it's facebook you know everyone like is talking about it yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Jim, Jim Rowe. Hey, y'all. Hello, Jim. Shout out to Nick Orlando uh, and Barry Stature. Thank you for uh, for tuning in. Uh, Matthew Miller. I'll, I'll ask you the same question as I asked um, Nick Frost, which is, you know, you've got a lot of experience with LLMs. The the, the whole Noble platform is, is utilizing them pretty effectively by the sounds of things. <clears throat> what do you wish they could do that they can't do today? 
Um, I think it goes back to, you know, one of the reasons that we did that query diagnosis tool. I think there's a lot of ways we can continue to build on that is the explainability of what the AI is doing. You know, when you think about LLMs in general and, and ex like especially the GPT, it's really a black box. You don't necessarily know why it's choosing the answer it is, whether that's generating the response or potentially, you know, like the way we're using it, where it goes and picks content. I think, you know, when we put the guardrails on, it allows for a little bit easier way to start to peel back the layer and find that explainability. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to just, you know, with anything, it's one of the, the tricky parts of, you know, improving these models, especially as we start to, you know, see them prevalent around everywhere is how we're going to explain what's going on so that we can actually improve the model right and so that that's uh that's probably the biggest um the biggest weakness if you want to call it that but uh yeah that that's where i would want to you know see some improvements and and what would that give you jim's asking by knowing uh why it's choosing a certain answer could presumably help you develop develop better prompts is is that part of the reason for wanting this kind of explainability angle? Is there anything else that you would get from, from having a bit more visibility into how it's all working? Well, yeah, I mean, one, you know, from the, if you think about it, like from how ChatGPT is doing, it would definitely allow you to develop prompts uh, in a lot better structure because you would understand exactly how the AI would respond to certain ones. I, you know, and I th then I think again, from our perspective, you know, when you go into, if you have more of that explainability, I really, really think that it's going to allow for way quicker improvements to the model so that, you know, when you see, hey, why is it grabbing this content? You know, again, we have the query diagnosis tool that allows you to see certain words and why it's weighted towards other, but maybe going a step further and like understanding, you know, okay, it, this word's weighted towards that. Is there anything in the underlying model that is, you know, it may have been biased trained on? Because at the end of the day, these large language models were trained on, you know, millions, sometimes billions of parameters of data. So you don't you don't know if there's any bias that that was learned. And, and that's kind of where it gets a little tricky. Um, and that's why the generation is always going to be extremely, you know, terrifying for an enterprise. And, and I go back to like putting those guardrails on there. Think you're on mute it's another school by error i should know about this by now okay. i'm only putting myself on mute because my father-in-law is outside stripping the wallpaper and so it's quite noisy um so shout out to nick uh from from core ai uh this question hasn't been asked yet but but i think we've covered some of it but it'd be worth maybe trying to to encapsulate the specifics um what how is noble's approach with llms similar or different compared to other players in the space so for example Nick works at Core AI. We had Raj and Prasanna on uh, last week or the week before discussing how uh, LLMs are a, a kind of key feature to the Core AI platform uh, and how it's been used for different use cases. Uh, Cognigy kind of released a few things over, over the last few weeks. Raza have been sort of doing the same. Nice CX1 has, has announced something. Everyone seems to be kind of announcing integrations with LLMs. And I think that the, the trick is to how how they are implemented and 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 to be able to utilize them effectively basically rather than just having them and Corey, Corey is doing some really interesting stuff in that regard to be fair um but in terms of like if we compare noble 
to another type of platform that's perhaps built on a traditional NLU system, what would kind of in a nutshell be the the difference between Noble and uh, other other kind of players in the space? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually watched uh, the the podcast you had uh, with Corey I with Raj and um, uh, their their CTO was yeah, it yeah Prasanna, um, yeah but, CTO yeah yeah um, and you know really interested in what they're doing um, and you know so I, it's funny when first Chat TPT came out I saw some of the vendors come in really quickly and were like oh my god this is going to be amazing we're going to use it to generate utterances to train our model and I was like. Well, that seems a little backwards. Like you're going to generate utterances from a newer model to then use to train a previous model. That's like, you know, like if I were going back in the 1800s and I was like, I came up with an engine that's going to, you know, power the first automobile. But instead I was like, all right, we're going to use it to pull the horse. Like, like that's not the best application of that. So, you know, as, as I've started to see some of the vendors are getting much more, um, you know, some of the vendors are definitely more on point with, I think, the way they want to do it from core AI. I really like the fact that they have this, you know, multi NLU approach where you do have the zero shot mixed with the few shot. And then also their, you know, the, the NLU that they've created from, you know, before. I would say where we differentiate from, you know, a, a lot of these uh, a lot of these brands that are using LLMs is one we've we've really looked at all the problems that you you see when you're creating a conversational experience so i've already touched on it but you know the contextual management is a huge piece and we've automated that process entity extraction such a critical piece we've also found a way to do few shot learning with that and you know we're going to continue to build our patent portfolio to really see how can we use llm to really fix you know some of the problems that are traditionally here from you know really like our experience in the, in the market. And like one of the things we're, we're working on right now is when you think about analytics, especially with how our platform works, where, you know, if there's gaps in content, we actually want to be able to take cluster all these utterances that are coming in that aren't answered and be able to actually allow the user to see, Hey, you need to create content for these topics. And here are the different questions that people are asking. So now you know, now we're making it so much easier to then kind of go on that feedback loop of like, hey, we're seeing what customers are asking. We've actually already clustered the similar topics to the point where we're telling you, hey, you need content for this. And here are the top questions that you should think about answering when you're developing that content. So we just want to continue to use LLMs as in an approach to where we are simplifying the build for the enterprise. And, um, you know, kind of going to your question of how we differentiate from, you know, the traditional NLU provider. I mean, at this point, speedies and scalability is something that those providers, you know, are just not going to be able to say with, you know, truthfully because of how long it does take and, you know, live that life. It's, it's too long to get a model with 50 intents. Sometimes it would take a year, year and a half, and then try to get that 50 to hundred intents. That's, uh, it's not going to happen. And it, at least not without the accuracy diminishing quite significantly to the point where now you're, you're going back. And, and that's what we've actually seen a lot of these enterprises doing is they're condensing their model as they mm-hmm. grew their model, the accuracy got so bad. So they had to condense it. And um, you know that, so I, I don't, I think when you jump from the NLU, the traditional NLU providers to the ones leveraging LLMs, you're going to see a massive increase in just the like, speed to market, the ease and agility 
Um, and then I think what we're doing differently from, you know, any of the, the brands or providers with LLMs, and it is a competitive space, so everyone's going to be trying to find ways to catch up, but is, is ultimately looking at the conversation and what is needed to create the best experience and continuing to leverage large language models to facilitate those. So I, you know, I just want to continue to kind of push the envelope and we're always going to be focused on innovation. That's, that is it, the core of what we believe as a company and it's moving so quickly that there's never, you, you can, if you stay one year with the same stack, you're, you're, you're going to be old tech soon, you know? Mm, mm, absolutely um, there's a lot of comments going on here we are going to have to wrap up in a minute I do have something else at the top of the hour but um, Raj Tumalui shout out to Raj from uh, OpenStream comment is that uh, there is no inherent explainability in LLMs as there is no reasoning capability uh, that's that's fair enough uh, the question I asked um, that I did ask Matt was what do you wish they did um, and so reasoning was was part of that. It was a bit hypothetical. Uh, Richard Wozecker, uh, shout out to Richard. Uh, not knowing what the LLM is doing and why, so I like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle for generative AI. Uh, very true, very true. We have, uh, I don't think we're going to get that. There's two questions here. Maybe if we can do some quick-fire answers, we can get to some of these questions. So let's try and just do some quick-fires just to wrap up these two. We'll start with this one first. Uh, have you heard of, or what is your opinion about the RRG, role and reference grammar, which has a different approach from the regular LN, 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 NLU and LLM. Have you heard of RRG? That's, that's new for me. Though. I've never heard of that. I, yeah, I haven't. I'm definitely going to research it afterwards. I, I, you know, whenever I'm, whenever I can learn something new in this space, always going to. So yeah, I'm, I can't give my opinion on it, but uh, definitely going to start reading about it. Nice one, Christian. You should join me on the VBS podcast, and we'll, we'll you can explain what what that is and how it works. Uh, Barney, uh, shout out to Barney Stature. Uh, verification, truth slash facts, so it doesn't turn into a tool for reinforcing bias and propaganda is obviously important. Not to get too political, but is there a comparison on some level to news media and the potential for Fox GPT and MSNBC GPT? Thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, I mean. When you think about like, you know, uh, the amount of times that these models are going to be created and like the way now that you can train it on specific domain data to ultimately enhance what it's knowledgeable about. I'm sure you could you could eventually see that the different news medias are going to ultimately, you know, position. uh, You know, I don't know if they're going to build their own model. I doubt that. But very much they could leverage a model to kind of, you know, go out there and, and basically put out their beliefs. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be the best application necessarily. Um, I think misinformation is already um, something that GPT is struggling with. So, I, you know, it's, it's the, the validity of what it's going to be giving you. I, I don't know. Mm, same, same here. Um, yeah, it's a good question. That. Uh, it's interesting. I saw, I saw that uh, BuzzFeed stock went up because it was announcing that it will be using uh, chat GPT or similar technologies to, to generate content. And it was like, I thought that's kind of already what it did. I don't think anyone's even going to notice a difference. Like, why has the stock gone up? No, <laughs> no one's going to notice a blind bit of difference. It could be hallucinating in every single article and no one will notice a difference in BuzzFeed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, go on. No, I was just going to say, it's funny how sometimes the market reacts to that because like anyone that's like in the industry, when you see the market reacting, they, they always react so dramatically to some of these these newer implementations. I mean, Google, when they, um, was it like a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, when they did their presentation, their stock dropped like 8%. It was like, oh my God, that's, no, no. that's you it's know, it's still Google. <laughs> yeah. The Forbes published something that I shared on LinkedIn, which was that uh, Google stock, stock dropped by like 100 billion because on Bard's, the slide that showed Bard's response to the James Webb telescope question, it actually got a fact wrong. It got some information incorrect. And the Forbes article was saying that the stock has dropped because of that. And obviously there was far more going on because that coincides in that week with Microsoft announcing Bing GPT, which is obviously going to be the bigger driver. All of a sudden Microsoft looks like it's going to take over search. Google stock plummets. Just so happens that there was a fact that was wrong in uh, in the presentation, but it was a good spin. Uh, that got a good, quite a good debate going on there. Um, but anyway, Matt, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, for those of you tuning in, do check out noble.com. And for those listening in, in on the podcast, it is K-N-O-W-B-L.com. All the links to all that will be in the show notes. Uh, so go there, check it out. It sounds, it does sound genuinely uh, innovative and fantastic. If you're not signed up to the European Chatbot Summit, go to theeuropeanchatbot.com. Promo code VUXEU23 will save you 30% on your ticket on March the 16th in Edinburgh, VUX World is going to be there live, running a whole track of content where we're going to have uh, content from Vodafone, Total Jobs Group, Love Holidays, LNER, Decathlon, a whole bunch of epic companies doing some really, really good stuff with Conversational Air. So hope to see you there. Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me, mate. It's been wicked. Yeah, thanks, Kane, for having me on. Always, uh, always a pleasure and looking forward to getting some noble swag over there for you. Definitely, definitely. Likewise, there will be some VUX merch on its way to you as well. Uh, definitely. Thank you all for tuning in uh, and I'll see you on the next one. Thanks very much.